Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hi. Welcome. Welcome to the Visual Workplace. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I am your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. I'm really glad you made time to tune in. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living dynamic landscape of work through visual devices, how to install the language of our current level of operational excellence into the living physical landscape of work. If we're not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be, it's okay. Capture that level, make it concrete and specific through visual devices, through visual mini systems, and then you can literally see, you can physically see how you think. How your thinking will function because that thinking is embedded and it will function and give you immediate feedback on whether or not your visual devices are powerful enough or whether there are gaps, whether there are information deficits that can be easily eliminated by creating a visual device here, a visual device there. Maybe a device is there, but it's not quite powerful enough. This is all the technology of visual thinking and the visual workplace. Visuality is about installing a language that has meaning, has impact, gives immediate feedback, and can be changed, can be edited, as it were, edited to make it more functional, just like any language. You're writing a book. You're writing a book on the operational details of your enterprise, And those details are captured in visual devices. Meaningful. There's so much I want to say right now, but I'm going to follow a linear path and get there in a straightforward way. So welcome. And if you want to check me out or check our products and services out or get some podcasts or get some free articles, come to our website, visualworkplace.com. If you want to be in touch with us or in touch with me directly, Write us at radio at visualworkplace.com, radio at visualworkplace.com. That's a special email for our radio listeners. Or you can just contact us through the website, and that email is contact at visualworkplace.com. It is on every page, on every page. I want to say a couple of things before we begin the show, continuing our uh, journey through becoming a brilliant Visual Workplace trainer which is a sub-journey, a detour, as I walk through my book, Work That Makes Sense, Operator-Led Visuality. What I want to do now is I want to wish you, I want to wish you health. I want to wish you safety. And I want to wish you some level of peacefulness. It is, these things are important, of course, and especially important at this time, and not just for ourselves, but for all of those whom we hold dear and near who may not be close by, but are still very dear to us. There's a lot of worry in the world right now. I recognize that. I can feel it all around me, and I go into my own spasms myself. Something will capture me. 
and it'll take me a little while to shake it. And I come back to my center and I come back to the feeling of gratitude and of a sense of safety that perhaps may not be apparent from just looking around the world, the world that surrounds me and surrounds you. This is not a show about new age thinking. It is not a show about metaphysics. It is not a show about developing your internal spiritual muscles. But I will say that if you have a process for that, strengthen it now so that you can feel the moment and the importance of the moment. You know, I want to say, I want to tell you a little story. About four months ago, maybe five, maybe it was around Christmas time, I was talking to a professor whom I had known 30 years before when I got my PhD. He was um, a tricky guy. He was very, very intelligent, and and I liked him a lot. And he had a kind of um, an odd way of thinking, which I found very refreshing. Anyway, we were talking, and I said, you know, Travis, the thing is, I like him very much. He was a good professor, really great professor. I said, Travis, you know, I didn't call him doctor. Mm-mm-mm. I called him Travis. Travis, I... I find that there's something missing from our lives at this moment of life on the planet for us in Western civilization. And it's something that I was reading about that was very present when I was reading about Winston Churchill and his memoirs of the Second World War, which I, I've, I've, to, I've talked about some, at some length here on the show. And I said, I said it, it was a, it's a feeling of global connectedness or a a feeling of a meaningful global existence. And I said, it looks as though we're going to complete our lives, because he's about my age, we're going to complete our lives without having an experience of that. But that was the experience, as I've read about it, of people who lived during the time of the Second World War. It was a global crisis, and all people were called upon, whatever their side of the story was they were called upon, they were involved, they were engaged, they were the bacon, not the eggs. (laughs) And I said, you know, uh, it it, it just seems to have escaped several generations. Well, I was wrong. Four months later, here we are in the midst of it. And I was going for my walk uh, the other day, and I just had a moment of really uh, isolation, and I was thinking to myself, This is what it feels like at the beginning of finding, having to find a new level of meaning in one's life. This is what it feels like, which is disoriented and the way is not clear. The way is not clear. And I think I realized, now I don't know if this is true, but I think this must have been the way people felt let's just say, in the United States or even Europe, as World War II crashed in upon them. It was sort of like, holy cow, what is this? And how do I protect myself against it? And what the heck am I supposed to do? Because there were a lot of people who were not immediately needed, engaged, called upon. They were just kind of hanging around on the edges, the way I feel that I am. 
I don't know if I'm going to be called upon, but I know at the moment I don't see the way forward. I don't see how I can help except to self-isolate and, you know, wear my face mask and be kind to people. Hmm? But the stories that are written about the people, so many people during World War II, are stories of heroism that was not elected, that simply came to a moment where these individuals rose to an occasion which they could have never predicted, and they acted according to their internal character or their internal character combined with their external need. This is where the great stories came from, all the movies, the endless stories of the Second World War, because the size of that event was so huge that it needed all those stories. But those stories were told afterwards. In the midst of things, we muddled through. We did the best we could. Nobody tried to be heroes. They just wanted to get through and still recognize themselves at the end of it. Now, I may be over-dramatizing this, and I'm going to stop in a moment because we've got a lot of work to do, (laughs) a lot of things I want to share with you today. But it occurred to me that there is this moment of suspension that I'm feeling right now. I'm suspended between right now and what's coming next. And it's not exactly going to be the reopening of the economy because so much has already changed. Mm? but it's going to be something. And I wonder, I wonder what the stories will be in 20, 30 years, 40 years. Now it's been, it's getting close to 100 years. It's 80 years since the Second World War. What the stories will be about us then. Because we'll be a part of that. But we didn't get into this thing to have a story written about us. We will simply move forward. Or maybe we'll sit down on the side of the road. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, this is speculation. Let's get on to the business of our work together. I wish you health. I wish you safety. And I wish you peacefulness. And for all of those who are near and dear to you. Hmm? So, on to the journey. So, let's revisit now. Last time we met, I was walking through the principles of visual workplace training, which are very similar to the principles of any kind of good training. And I had spent the whole last show talking to you about the role of the supervisor and that they had to be on board, which is principle five. And principle six, they have to keep a low profile. I am going to finish the principles now because I'm going to take a deep dive into the meaning of that low profile, which I hit pretty strongly the last time, but there's much more to be said about it because it really, really is an inversion of the power structure, just as I suggested last time, and I want to give that more detail. So let me pick up where we were. Principle six was keep your supervisors, and that means managers, on board. Keep them on board, and principle six, that was five, I made a mistake a minute ago. That was five. And six is keep supervisors and managers keep a low profile. Let me move on to seven and then eight and nine. So there's just a few more principles to go, and they are well worth our consideration. Principle seven is it always takes longer. In work that makes sense as an approach, 
it has to do with training, coaching, implementation, and adopting a set of behaviors that may be different from those found in other improvement initiatives, different behaviors for associates, different behaviors for supervisors, managers, and maybe even for you. So, adopting new behavior, new behaviors take time. How much time? Well, I want to talk about that just from the point of view of trainers. Trainers have to basically train the methodology, but they also need to prepare for it. They need to prepare for it. They need to do their homework. And I'm going to hit the homework assignment condition when we actually get back to the Work That Makes Sense book and we start working on smart placement. And I will describe to you what the what the trainer's role is before that training session starts. It's really quite amazing. Um, it's very rich and very meaningful for everyone. It's in very important preparation. But you can count as a trainer on about two hours outside of the training session for getting ready, for following up. And that's a kind of minimum two hours. Because it In work that makes sense, the way that I do it and the way that we train it is that the trainer is in charge of the training and in charge of the results of the training for the cycle. In the middle of the cycle, some of those duties get handed off to the supervisor, but we have to train the supervisors to be good coaches and how to follow up on people's ideas and how to work with maintenance or engineering or whatever the source of the technical help is, how to follow up and keep things fluffy, but also moving forward. But during the training cycle itself, the trainer is the lead. And there's lots of permutations of that, subsets of that. But let's talk about how much time for the first implementation cycle. Most plants, if you've got about 150 people, will be about six implementation cycles 25 to 30 people per, per, uh, per cycle. And that cycle, that cycle, that first cycle can take anywhere from three to six months. That is quite a range. And I want to talk about that range just a little bit. Why is there a range from three to six months? Why can't we say if we do one training session a week and there are 12 tra- training sessions, then, you know, in three months we're done. Something like that. Well, because the training is tied to the depth of the change that is needed. The training is mapped against the change that your organization needs to go through. Because remember, visuality does get you 15 to 30% increase in productivity. Absolutely 100%. But it also gives you cultural transformation. When you are embedding a language into the living dynamic landscape of work, you are making connections and you are grooming the work culture. So the factors are the size of your training group. We say begin with 15. You can get up to about 25. I can train as many as 50 I have and in a foreign language. But for most trainers, 15 
to begin with so that you're spending your time on learning the methodology and learning the behaviors of being a good trainer and not just doing the multiples of volume. And you can get up to 25, 28, depending how your shifts work. So factors, the size of your training group, production demand, the amount of improvement time that is allotted for visual improvement activities. We talked about improvement time when we talked about the infrastructure when we were doing Chapter 3. Another factor will be employee turnover. What is that rate? Supervisory turnover. Are you stable or are you jagged? Another factor will be the history of the improvement history in your plant, in your company. And another factor will be management resolve. Are they, are managers there, top managers? Are they watching your back? Are they doing their job? All of that and much, much more gets rolled up into the great catch-all, your company's level of organizational readiness. So your organizational readiness will be a large contributing factor to how long is an, your first implementation cycle and then your second, your third, okay? The conversion that you seek, a visual conversion, takes time. And this principle is called principle seven, it always takes longer, and it always takes longer. It just takes longer. Mm-hmm. The process itself, okay? Let's go to principle eight. Principle eight is keep going and keep growing, learn. Work that makes sense focuses on three outcomes. They'll be familiar to you, and all of them is good are good news. The first outcome you may remember is to achieve a visual showcase, a work that makes sense showcase. Why is that important? Because when there's a showcase inside your facility, it will show others exactly what operator-led visuality looks like and how it functions. It will inspire them to want one for themselves. That's the sell. The sell is you create. The marketing is you create a work that makes sense, visual, showcase, operator-led inside the company. And that's all the publicity you need. People look at it and they say, yeah, me too. Sign me up. What's taking you so long? That's outcome one. Outcome two is to achieve concrete performance results that demonstrate that operator-led visuality has a measurable impact on the bottom line. That's where you collect the metrics, if you remember this. You just keep track of it once a week. You take a kind of snapshot, and you'll see your KPIs begin to drift in a positive direction, whether that's positive up or positive down. The third outcome is that people learn, including yourself and the management champion and the lead team, that we are here to learn. We're here to learn about the process and the methodology. We're here to learn how to implement visuality. We're here also to learn what's easy for us individually and for the company and what's hard. We're here to learn, and we're here to learn to learn, and to learn about people and learn about ourselves and learn about visuality. So the idea is you stay open. You stay open. This is what the Buddha said. He said, you know what? Here's your job. Show up. Tell the truth. Stay open. Those three things. Show up. Tell the truth. Stay open. That's the way you learn. That's the way you change. And I will guarantee every trainer who's listening, you will not be the same person at the end of your first cycle of work that makes sense 
as you were at the start. You will be more open, more skilled, more willing, more confident, more ready to learn. Ready to learn more in your second cycle and your thirds, so on. And you will have learned a lot about yourself and a lot about people. And we make that one of the guiding principles. There are nine of them. This is one of the nine that we're here to learn. Principle nine, it takes a village. There is a tendency for us when we get involved, for some of us, when we get involved in an improvement initiative to get heroic, but in the wrong sense of the word. Good-hearted and determined, some people will decide to carry on the effort solo on their own shoulders. Well, that's not much fun, I will tell you. And it is usually not very effective. If you are a work-that-makes-sense trainer, then you have to partner, please, with your coordinator and the lead team. Use them as a resource and a support. That's what they're there for. And don't overlook the incredible resource called your visual workplace champion, your ranking executive who has ordered, mandated this change, and who will support it. These are all partners. And get other folks on on board as well. Even as trainers, if only part-time, let them back you up. Let them become kind of assistant trainers. They can sit in as coaches during labor-intensive exercises, such as the four smart placement modules that will be starting soon. You share what you're learning. You share what you're teaching. You share the experience and the behaviors, and others will help you. It does take a village. Visuality is a total company conversion, so it takes a lot of the company to make it happen. It doesn't mean that it's night and day edge of your seat intense. It means that it's comprehensive. And when two or three other people learn the training ropes, they can pinch hit for you, they can team teach, and then as time rolls by, you'll get an all-associate steering team. That's the third leg of the three-legged stool. And they can become a splendid training and coaching resource as well. It happens in lots of companies. The steering team made up of all volunteer associates will help you train and will help fellow associates understand visuality and shoot for higher outcomes. This is really important, especially if you have to handle three shifts or, God help you, four to five shifts. Are you going to come in on all the weekends and all the evenings? No. You may be fully capable of handling one shift on your own. But even then, there are many behind-the-scene tasks that others can share in and want to. So please widen the scope so that you don't try to do it alone. That is really a mistake. You're going to get tired, you're going to get fed up, burnt out, and you're going to fail. And you'll fail for all the wrong reasons. So you spread the enjoyment and the rewarding satisfaction of participating in a transformation. You invite this help. You plan for it. You ask for it. You build it in. So those are the nine principles, and they're important. We talked about the physical learning environment, and this is the headspace for 
a serious rollout. This is not doing Lean 101 or 5S 101 where you give 45 minutes of training and it's good luck Charlie time. This is changing the minds and the hearts. And I want to use that as a segue to get to the matter that I planned for this particular show. And that is the matter that is kind of hidden in Principle 7 that says supervisors keep a low profile. It has to do with a power inversion. It has to do with a shift. And I want to explain this now. Leadership and the power inversion. Okay? So, the challenge of transforming an enterprise is the challenge of almost all the initiatives that are going on everywhere around the planet in terms of the journey to operational excellence. It's a mighty challenge where companies have to exchange outdated operational principles, you know, such as they, instead of large batches, you're going to be asked to adopt a batch size of one, for heaven's sakes, and to design layouts based on flow instead of on function, on silos, and building quality in instead of inspecting it out. These are all big, big shifts. They're operational process shifts. There is a philosophical bend to all of these. And in addition to that, companies have to rethink and reformulate the habits the assumptions, the preferences of not only people who add value, but also the management staff itself. So not just operators, but also executives, heads of departments, and supervisors. Thankfully, I think (laughs) most companies don't really grasp the scope and the scale of the change the change that's required when they decide, when they first decide to convert their operations or transform their enterprise, they don't really grasp it. (laughs) They're likely to say that, uh, you know, changing the lot sizes is challenge enough. How could there be more? But there is more. And that more may be set aside temporarily, but it can't be ignored, and that more has to do with the fabric of your work culture. That's going to have to happen. You can't push lean through. If you're going to establish an operational landscape based on flow, you can't push it in place. You'll have to figure out how to implement flow. It's the same thing for the connectivity of information. You can't push it in place. You can't have some engineers come in and put up some signs and put in some color coding and put some labels and lines in the floor. That will get you nothing. In fact, you will reject it as an opportunity because you will see that it has failed. So transformation is about deciding what you want to have happen, but it is also embracing how it has to happen. So it's a combination of what and how. They couldn't be more intimately linked. The fabric of the work culture. And when I mean, when I say fabric, I mean the sum total of 
well, this is going to be excessive, but I want to say it this way. Each and every action, transaction, and informational exchange that occurs within any shift, day or night, week or month or year, for the life of the company, that's the work culture. The work culture is not an isolated event. You can't put it in a box and say, this is it. It exists across the life of the company and it expresses the quality of the work life in that company. The context is operations and performance. And in a way, your work culture represents the personality of your enterprise as well as its consciousness, its awakeness. Work culture mirrors the soul of your enterprise. Doc called it a great book on that many years ago called The Soul of the Enterprise. He's still with us and the book is still with us. It is worth a read. Work culture describes, it explains, it defines who the enterprise is, what it's about, what it values, and how it conducts itself. And all of that is available for the world to see. Every company ships its work culture. Every part that's made, every patient that's served, every report that's written, every deadline that's met or missed, information that's shared or lost, every truth, every lie, every promise made or broken, impacts and reshapes the culture of work in an enterprise. Minutely, of course, but really no detail is immune. The conversion of operations to lean, installing a pull system, that's what I mean by lean. I have the old-fashioned 1980s definition. Installing a pull system, time-based pull. That's one wing of the bird and installing informational adherence and flow. That's the other wing. Lean is the first. Visual is the second. Or visual is the first, and lean is the second. Pull and time, information and flow. They impact and require. They impact your work culture, but they also require a careful um, unfoldment of how that change is going to happen. It doesn't happen by accident. You cannot align your work culture by accident. Companies, even companies, I would say, even companies with paternalistic frameworks of governance, demand and control, command and control, are faced with this same challenge. Because the genie is out of the bottle, if you had to land on one word that captured the stuff and substance of that change, I think that word would be empowerment. With with the word power, wham, right there in the middle. It's empowerment. Empowerment. It's a revolution. It's a revolution that got triggered in the consciousness of the United States and most Western civilizations 60, 70, 80 years ago. It really was World War II, which was a huge trigger, and then the whatever the heck that was that happened in the 1960s that opened it further. A world of implications and applications, a conversion of the work culture. 
towards a greater balance of the power. The power as we seek a new governance paradigm, a new paradigm in governance and how work happens and how it is controlled and governed. It's a new way to define and distribute power. And that's what I want to talk about in reference to specifically supervisors keep a low profile. Why is it so important to me? Why is it so important to visuality that supervisors not supervise during the training? Well, it has to do with what I observed when supervisors exerted themselves way back when in the 1980s when I myself was in a revolution of learning. If you remember, I used to be a Latin teacher and then I was an actor in New York and then I was a mother and then I was a, a clerk, a, a, a checkout clerk at Kroger's and then this and then that and then this and then I found myself in my first factory because I borrowed the uh, server keyboard of Norman Bodek, who happened to have been a person who was creating a company called Productivity in the 1980s. And he saw that I could write and put sentences together and put me in charge of the development of training and his consulting group and of everything. And suddenly, I had a different landscape to look at and understand I was learning. And the Japanese came over with their with their huge treasures, and I couldn't make them work. You've heard that story. I've told you many times. And I was in the old paradigm. That old paradigm had many names. The top-down pyramid, command and control, demand and control, the military model, paternalistic governance, or my own personal favorite, the thumb. (laughs) The thumb, as in your thumb on my head. Whatever its name, obedience was at the heart, is at the heart of the top-down approach. I say and you do, I order, you obey, I know and you don't. And by the way, if you want a treatment of this, please look at my other book, Visual Workplace, Visual Thinking. It's all laid out in Chapter 3 and then there's more in Chapter 4 when I talk about the individual But in chapter three, this is about the shift in paradigm. So in command and control, the general, if you will, the CEO, the site manager, the plant manager sits at the top of the heap, at the top of the pyramid, the apex, and the foot soldiers or your line employees, your operators, your value-add associates, they line the base of the pyramid. Command and control is the way fathers raised their children at the turn of the century and before. That's how my Swiss-born father raised me with a very heavy hand and zero tolerance for my opinion. It was a very popular model at the time that I was brought up. Widely accepted as the only way. The boss, or my pop, at the top of the heap and the child, me, at the bottom. Thus was the tree bent. Believe me, it was an experience. I could tell you stories. No fun at all. Terror, really. Fear. Coming home with my brother, Gary, saying, hey, Gary, how's Pop today? No, don't go near him. Okay. Or if I got home first, I would 
find Gary when he came home from school and say, stay away from Pop, or it's okay. You know, just, just really intense. And from many, many perspectives, this approach has been an undisputed success. It helped industrialized nations win wars. It helped to industrialize those nations, colonize the world. Rules, regulations, protocols, requirements, standards, decorum, structure. These were the forces that helped to pull a disparate population of immigrants that once were 13 colonies into a viable, thriving economy and society that would become the United States of America. Who would argue with that? This was the approach that got things done, and they stayed done. It was the paradigm of task and obedience. If you had any personal preferences or independent thinking, had to take a back seat to the orders from the boss. But that was a small price, a small sacrifice to pay for stability, predictability, and control of outside forces. This is protection. It was very much a medieval model as well. The big boss in the castle with the big wall around you protected you against the unknown. No, it worked for a while, but man, it became outdated. The genie escaped from the bottle. Only recently, comparatively speaking on the timeline of history of societies, was it discovered that the top-down model is really out of balance, and we knew why. And this is what I want to talk to you about again. I will not be able to complete it. You know what? Send me a punishing letter. I This is me, and I got to live with me too. This is the way I talk. What was discovered, and I will say what I discovered because this was like a, a bolt of lightning that came to me when I was trying to work out how, why, if this doesn't work, why does the other one work and why, if the other one works, is it not being adopted? And a lot of questions about organizational development and power structures, this for me was the 1990s. And I realized that the top-down model was out of balance because it represented only half of the equation, that there was another half, and it was the mirror opposite of the paternalistic, command-and-control, demand-and-control military approach. Now, you're going to have to hear me out because it will sound familiar, but then something happened in my brain, and I had a flashpoint where... I understood something that I had never understood before, but I want to kind of proceed in a linear fashion. The opposite of top-down is the bottom-up approach. It is command and control inverted. It is the pyramid sitting on its head with the, the little apex at the bottom and across the top are the foot soldiers. The foot soldiers line the upper wide edge of the pyramid which is now standing on its head 
and the CEO general plant manager is occupying the little space at the bottom. The notion of leader and leadership is literally turned on its head. The supreme commander now becomes the servant leader. And whom does the leader serve? The foot soldier, the value-add associate, the hourly employee. But be careful. Don't jump to conclusions yet because there's this is a sequence. But right when you look at the bottom-up approach, the message is clear. The leader's role in this new part of the power paradigm, an emphasis on part, because we're not talking about a substitution. We're talking about a new aspect. The leader's role in this new part of the power paradigm is to help value-add associates become more effective in their work and therefore more engaged. The new leader supports and attunes and listens to the needs of those whom he serves. This is his job, but I want to say this is part of his job. It is the part of the value principle-based action called respect for humanity. Respect for the individual is the way we translate it here in the United States. And I've told you before, Japanese translated respect for humanity. There is a difference. The bottom-up pyramid represents the empowerment model. Its goal is transformation, greater employee participation, greater employee effectiveness. It represents the sharing of power. Because the pyramid is inverted, the power and the authority of the enterprise flows upwards into the line of value represented by the the broad edge of the pyramid. The focus of leaders has been shifted to promoting and tangibly supporting others so that process, flow, quality, safety, and cost improve, that is, overall lead time improves, The emphasis is not on the leader accomplishing those tasks, but on her helping others accomplish their tasks. For value-add associates, the focus is no longer on their unquestioning obedience, but it is instead on studying, understanding, and improving the process, not obeying the rules. In my words, line employees are asked to become masters of cause and scientists of their own process. Masters of cause. My study of the Japanese companies was quite deep and complete in the 1980s. And it wasn't until the 1990s that I realized These great companies are about causality. Toyota is about causality. Parker Hannafin, at its best, is about causality. The whole enterprise is about causality. It is about one thing, going down the causal chain. And I say, let us ask and support 
line employees, let us ask them to become masters of cause and scientists of their own process. That's why I've said to you again and again that when operators get involved in visuality, we ask them to become scientists of motion, and they become scientists of motion. They become. So you have the top-down pyramid, you have the bottom-up pyramid, and the false decision point is, which one should I choose? It appears to be that you have to choose one. The bottom-up pyramid is the polar opposite of the top-down. It is inverted, and all the previous assumptions and preferences and principles and values are upside down, too. So it looks as though the previous power structure has been erased, but that is not so. This is my first main point, and it is a slight departure from some of the stuff that I heard in the 1980s where companies would run to the bottom-up pyramid and abandon top-down. And man, did they get in trouble fast. Lots of those companies failed. Okay? Any attempt to remove the previous power base, the top-down pyramid approach, will almost certainly destroy the entire organization, not just on the executive level. Yet that's the way it was in the, in the 1980s. That was the attempt, however wrongly, when we, the West, began to examine Japan. Japan showed us people involvement, employee engagement, and we thought we had to throw the rest of it out. Big mistake. When we first began to learn about empowerment and its values, its value, we began to understand the immense power that is released when harnessing the minds and the hearts, not just the hands and the feet, you've heard it before, of the workforce. And those companies rushed headlong into that. And in their haste, some of these companies mistakenly dismantled their executive and middle management structure in wholly replacing top-down with the bottom-up, the companies made a mistake. They turned over the running of their companies to quality circles and other empowerment configurations. They were surprised when the enterprise failed. But you and I, we can benefit from hindsight. We don't have to do that. We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater or the bathtub out either. There are two pyramids and there are two functions. Work that makes sense is formulated to create this balancing of the two powers, top down and bottom up. I'll continue this conversation and I promise to just jump into it after saying hello, I hope you're safe. This is what the visual workplace is about. Three minutes later we'll begin where I'm leaving off today because I want you to get that what I'm talking about is not putting color coding in place or labels and lines or pasting up signs, that this is a conversion 
It is a conversion of the physical environment. And when you change the physical environment through thinking, you change the culture and you have control over that outcome based on how you create that change. And in fact, the how will determine the extent to which that change can happen at all. The what. They're hand in hand. I discovered this. I discovered this and God gave me the grace, the gift to notice it and then to be able to write about it and then to create methodologies with that as as its foundation. Work that makes sense, operator-led visuality is, is a powerful leverage. It is the means, it is the most powerful means that I know of for shifting that balance creating that second pyramid. that The power of that pyramid is now the prisoner of your top-down. Where is the power for the bottom-up pyramid? Does it just appear to the left or the right out of thin air like you have a pencil and you draw it in or you're on a flip chart and you draw it with a black magic marker? No. The power of that bottom-up paradigm In many organizations, not so many now, because lots of companies have moved over, they may not be able to describe as I am the transformation, but the transformation was that the imprisoned bottom-up pyramid was released, and it is released gradually, and I will pick that up next week and tell you, I will share the words that I have found to describe it. And I'm doing that because I want it to not only inspire you, but excite you so that you understand that what, what operators offer to us, line associates, hourly employees, if we actually engage the potential of that change is everything. Everything will change because we're releasing a whole quantum of power that has been confined for so for as long as society has been trying to control and make people obey. So I want to thank you very much. I had a great time today. We hit several themes, but we've got, we're on the track now. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I wish you a great journey, a safe one and a healthy one. Be smart, be safe, and let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.